thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And today, we're going to get into looking at the historical foundations of the rule of law and what the rule of law actually means so that you will see over time that we do not have the rule of law in our nation anymore. The word rule of law is devoid of any meaning and we throw it around and we pride ourselves on it, but it does not, in fact, exist. It just doesn't. And you will soon begin to understand. But we have to put this in context. So I want to begin with a few quotes from a book that I've mentioned before by uh, law professor Harold J. Berman, who taught law at Harvard, was a great legal historian on the history of the law. He wrote a book entitled Law and Revolution, The Formation of the Western Legal Tradition. And he says a few things that are very important, and and, uh, it's a 700-page book, so I'm just going to give you a few quick 30,000, 50,000 foot highlights about the Western legal tradition that was the the bedrock for, the foundation for, and out of which the concept of the rule of law sprung. And he notes that really the Western legal tradition developed out of the papal revolution, the investiture struggle, in the 1100s, when the Catholic Church finally said, you know, we're not going to have the bishop, uh, the, the dukes, and the rulers appointing our bishops, the church is going to do that. And he notes in the book that beginning with really the papal revolution, we had a new emergence of an understanding of church and state right there. The issues of church and state became more into focus when the pope said, no, we're going to appoint our own bishops. But at the same time, we had going on there emerging secular kingdoms. We had the development of cities and towns. There was the newly systematized feudal and manorial relationships. There were translocal community of merchants. That stuff was trading in what we would call today interstate commerce. Okay, and and so each of these had developed their own little sets and systems of laws, and now they were coming into conflict with each other in all these different areas. So he says that to recognize the legitimacy of each of these contradictory elements, for example, he says, the ecclesiastical and secular orders, the royal and feudal orders, the feudal and urban, the urban and the guild, and yet recognize the structural unity of the total society of which they were a part. So in other words, how do we create unity and diversity in a society? How do we pull these things together? How do we find the principles that allow for a unity, but yet will respect diversity? Now that's exactly what our system of dual sovereigns is here in the United States. How do we have unity and yet diversity? Well, we have a federal government of delegated, limited powers to deal with concerns affecting all of us while leaving other matters to the states and states to local governments. 
The question of unity and diversity has to be addressed in the legal system. And why must it be addressed? Because it's rooted in a theological reality, the unity and diversity within God himself. God is one in essence and three in persons. And so all of life has to grapple with this question of unity and diversity, and so did legal systems. And he said that then became the revolutionary challenge of the times, beginning in the middle of the 12th century. He goes on and says, however, the new Western legal science that developed was more than an intellectual achievement. It wasn't just trying to figure out the Rubik's Cube of uh, ecclesiastical and secular, royal and feudal, feudal and urban, urban and guild. No, he said, its criteria were moral as well as intellectual. The form that they began to create expressed substantive values and policies, and law always does that. We'll look at that a bit later. But that's the nature of law. So, this led to what he calls legal science, the study of how do we put all these things together and the values that we hold, the principles, and particularly how they relate between God and man. So, Berman continues by saying this, it is impossible to understand the Western legal tradition without exploring its religious dimension. What such exploration shows is that basic institutions, concepts, and values of Western legal systems have their sources in religious rituals, liturgies, and doctrines of the 11th and 12th centuries, reflecting new attitudes towards death, sin, punishment, forgiveness, and salvation as well as new assumptions concerning the relationship of the divine to the human and faith to reason. Now, we've talked about some of this before in, in our last series on the why and how of political engagement. See, we began to look at the atonement from an objective standpoint with its terminus in God, then a subjective standpoint with its terminus in, in, in man, and, and, and then we said, but actually in the early church, the terminus was on the devil. It was God coming to destroy the devil and the works of the devil, the one under whose bondage and reign we were subservient. So you see, all of those things in, in the church, he's saying, as those things began to change, it began to shape how we began to consider law. And of course, the church was developing in its own set of laws through its canons. Okay, He goes on and says this, though. Over the intervening centuries, these religious attitudes and assumptions have changed fundamentally. And today, their theological sources seem to be in the process of drying up. This, he wrote in 1983. So see, we're 38 years past that. And to the extent that he's saying that today, they seem to be in the process of drying up. You will find, as we go through this series, they have dried up. They've even dried up within the Christian's understanding of law and the Christian lawyer's understanding of law, which is why I believe we've wandered in the wilderness for 48 years with abortion as the rule of, of our nation. But anyway, let me continue. Berman says, yet... Not, in other words, notwithstanding that the theological sources are in the process of drying up, and I submit are dried up, 
the legal institutions, concepts and values that have derived from them still survive, often unchanged, okay? Remember me using the statements multiple times in the early years of our podcast from de Tocqueville where he says, if the lights that guide us ever go out, they'll gradually dim and we'll be left with wise procedures that we no longer understand and we'll just make a clumsy and an unintelligent use of them. We won't know really why they're there. We just do them because, well, that's how we do them. And we'll be unable to invent new ones because we won't even understand what the foundations of the original were one and where, where we got off. We can't go back because we don't know where we got off track. So he says, Western legal science. Remember, he's just talked about the fact that a, a legal science began to develop of trying to reconcile and pull all these things together, these disparate parts to create unity within diversity. He said, is now a secular theology. We have to understand that our understanding of law is always grounded in our understanding of God, man, and the world. Always. And our understanding of God is first because it shapes how we understand man and the world. So when you jettison God from your law, you now have a secular theology. It's not the absence of theology. It's just a theology of man and the world absent a particular theology of who God is and the doctrine of God. Remember how Dr. Grant said it, restoring the vision, and I used it in our last series. You always start with your theology, not your anthropology. Who is God and what has God done? Then you go to your anthropological existential problems. But today, we've excluded God, so it just is a secular theology. And then he continues, which often makes no sense because its theological presuppositions are no longer accepted. And again, that's what de Tocqueville was saying. We're left with wise procedures. We don't even know how the, why they are what they are. And he gives a great example. And I want to close today, uh, today's episode with this example. Berman continues, A bizarre example may shed on the paradoxes of a legal tradition that's lost contact with its theological sources. If a sane man is convicted of murder and sentenced to death, and thereafter, before the sentence is carried out, he becomes insane, his execution will be postponed until he recovers his sanity. Generally speaking, this is the law in Western countries and in many non-Western countries as well. Why? The historical answer in the West is that if a man is executed while he is insane, he will not have had the opportunity freely to confess his sins and to take the sacrament of Holy Communion. He must be allowed to recover his sanity before he dies so that his soul will not be condemned to eternal hellfire, but will instead have the opportunity to expiate his sins in purgatory and ultimately at the last judgment to enter the kingdom of heaven. But where none of this is believed, why keep the insane man alive until he recovers and then kill him? He says, this is perhaps a, uh, uh, an example of minor importance, but it illustrates that the legal systems of our Western countries, of our nation, are a secular residue of religious attitudes and assumptions that are no longer understood. And when these historical roots, he said, are not understood, many parts of the law appear to lack any underlying source of validity. So, 
Why can't a mother kill her baby? Why can't two men marry? Why can't people unrelated to a child be a parent without even adoption? Why can't a boy be a girl? That's where we are in our nation. We've been left with wise procedures, a constitution that actually was grounded in theological presuppositions in the common law and natural law that gave rise to a rule of law, and we don't understand any of that anymore. And we take the words and the phrases of the Constitution and we infuse them with whatever meaning seems to be appropriate at the moment. And it's created a confused nation. If the United States were a man, it would be what James called the double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, because there is no foundation anymore. And next week, we're going to take a look at some of those historical foundations and assumptions that became the law of the United States. And I think you're going to find this really fascinating because all of it provides a context for understanding, again, as I say, the confusion taking place in our courts and in our politics and in our interactions with one another. So thank you for joining me today, and I look forward to seeing you again on next week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.